Whenever I upload an episode of this podcast, I include a still image from the film and the date of its release, but I still feel that some people may click on this with the impression that we're going to be talking about the 2016 Doctor Strange film here. There's a lot to unpack in that one, and I wouldn't be surprised if we tackle that down the road at some point, but no, we're going to be discussing the 1978 TV film here. (laughs) See, Sylvan's out for a few weeks, so Cheryl and I are going to cover some cinematic garbage that Sylvan has absolutely no interest in visiting. We're going whole hog! And since we love Sylvan, we're not going to make him watch any of this. And that includes this movie, which was a failed attempt to kickstart a Doctor Strange TV show and is part of a number of attempts to get a Doctor Strange ongoing thing off the ground, which didn't happen until decades later. We'll be talking about some of those failed attempts in addition to this film. My name is Ryan. This is A Real Deep Dive. Joining me on this one is my sister, Cheryl. Doctor Strange is one of your personal favorite superhero characters. Yes, I find him to be incredibly endearing and like a not charming, awkward man that's always at the party, but nobody's quite sure who invited him. That's a not bad way to surmise that I was about to ask what the appeal of him to you was, but uh, yeah, you covered it already. All right, so, but before we talk about this 1978 TV movie, like most pop culture institutions that have multiple iterations, I'm going to throw some background detail about the character. All right, so to lay the groundwork, Doctor Strange was created by Steve Ditko, who pitched the character to writer-editor Stan Lee with a five-page penciled story. Lee elected to slot the story as a filler strip in the horror anthology Strange Tales. The character was named Doctor Strange because of the comic's title. Doctor Strange proved popular enough to become a fixture in Strange Tales, splitting the page count with Solo Adventures of the Human Torch and then the spy series Nick Fury, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Doctor Strange got an eight-page origin story with his fourth appearance. He is depicted as an arrogant surgeon who loses the use of his hands in a car accident and desperately seeks out the fabled magician known as the Ancient One for a cure. There, he learns arcane abilities and ultimately decides to restart his life as a heroic wizard. Stanley's scripts borrowed heavily from the supernatural radio drama Shandu the Magician, but they also played into the hippie community's fascination with Eastern spirituality, although often ham-fistedly. Believe it or not, but uh, Stanley was not particularly well-versed in um, Eastern spiritual disciplines, and he mostly just cherry-picked words that he thought sounded cool and mystical. Sorry, I just, whenever I think of Doctor Strange, I think of that fucking caterpillar, so I'm like, you don't say! So, Doctor Strange uses the mystical eye of Agamotto to peer into people's souls, or he binds them in the crimson bands of Cytorak. None of that means anything. No, but it means so much to me! <laughs> Steve Ditko's plots and his artwork leaned heavily into surreal concepts, abstracted visuals, and colorful vistas. Doctor Strange soon became a cult hit amongst college students and also potheads. Plenty of (laughs) people wrote letters to Marvel explaining how their mushroom trips dovetailed perfectly into their Doctor Strange reading experience, which Stanley found very confusing. He found it confusing? That wasn't like the goal? I know, it seems like it. 
Frustrated with Stanley taking the lion's share of the credit for their collaboration, both on Doctor Strange and on Spider-Man, Ditko left Marvel for other publishers in the mid-60s. Ditko's immediate successors included Submariner creator Bill Everett, EC colorist Marie Severin, and Marvel bullpen luminaries such as Dan Adkins and Gene Colan. After his solo adventures were cancelled, Doctor Strange became a founding member of the Defenders, alongside Hulk, Submariner, and the Silver Surfer. His own title was then revived for a fan-favorite run by Steve Englehart and Frank Brunner. The character became a minor icon in American counterculture. Tom Wolfe references Doctor Strange in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and he's brought up in songs recorded by T-Rex, Country Joe and the Fish, and Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd in particular took a lot from Doctor Strange. They lifted a Marie Severin splash page of Doctor Strange for the sleeve art for their second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, which I believe Severin was not compensated for, which is bullshit. Also, the Irish psychedelic folk band Doctor Strangely Strange is named after him. That's <laughs> a really cute name for a band. Following the success of the Incredible Hulk TV show in the mid-70s, a number of Marvel Comics properties were considered for television. Thor and Daredevil appeared in the Hulk as backdoor pilots that went nowhere. Captain America would get a disastrous TV movie of his own a year after the Doctor Strange one came out. So hey, at least Doctor Strange isn't alone in not quite making the grade. <laughs> He's in good company of failure. Alright, now for the plot recap. You're going to be able to do that with the movie we just saw? Yeah. Uh, In a nebulous dimension on the astral plane, an unnamed evil entity who is totally not Dormammu... He isn't Dormammu because Dormammu is just like a regular dude with a flaming head for a head. Whereas, uh, as Cheryl described, that he is alternatively either a lumpy Tom Servo or a pool noodle with multiple eyes. <laughs> it's wonderful and terrible. Anyways, this evil entity tells Morgan Le Fay, yeah, uh, there's no direct connection between this version of Le Fay and Arthurian mythos, but you know, I was just going to call her that. But he has been prevented from breaking through to the earthly realm by a great wizard. At some point in the distant past, Le Fay was defeated by this wizard, and she's been aching for revenge ever since. The entity mentions that the wizard is reaching the end of his tenure and must find a successor to take his mantle. It adds that Fay has three days to either defeat the wizard or kill him, and also to corrupt his successor to the dark side. Lafay journeys to Earth, possesses a young woman named Clea Lake, and uses her as a weapon against Thomas Lindmer, this aforementioned wizard, who is the sorcerer supreme appointed to protect Earth from the interdimensional forces of evil. She uses Lake's body to push Lindmer off a bridge to his death, but he doesn't die, he just sort of gets up and <laughs> limps away, and then uses his rotoscope Doctor Who transformation hands to uh, heal himself. I know, the whole time, I'm like, he's regenerating! Lindmer's friend and pupil, although he takes great care to not call him a manservant, Wong, looks after him and also locates Lake for him. Suffering from psychic after-effects of the possession and haunting dreams of Morgan Le Fay, Lake has been taken under the care of psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Strange at a mental hospital. Although, he is a very interesting psychiatrist because we open on him talking to a woman about her ulcers. Yeah, and he's just like, you gotta lay off the sauce. And she's like, well, I try. But he's like, oh, that's okay. You can just stay here for free in the hospital for a night. And then he immediately brings in a guy who apparently has slit his wrist, but he just has like band-aids on them. It was... And it's the top part of his wrist. Anyways. 
Strange, fortuitously enough, has the potential to become Linmer's successor by virtue of abilities and items inherited from his father, including a signet ring. Strange intuitively senses that something is very wrong, and he shares Lake's nightmare about the previous day's events, but he does not understand what is happening. Linmer contacts Strange by entering the mental hospital and using, like, Jedi mind tricks to get, you know, into the ward. Yeah, I slowed their pulses. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> And he tells Strange that Lake needs more help than what can be offered by medical science. Strange takes Lindmer's card and notices that it bears the same symbol as his ring. Meanwhile, Morgan Le Fay possesses a cat and tries to enter Lindmer's house, but magical barriers repel it. Clea is terrified of going to sleep because she thinks that awful things will happen, particularly with that magical witch woman that nobody can seem to see except for her. But Strange's superior just sort of overrules him and slips her some thorns. So she passes out and immediately goes into a coma. It's a total Elm Street situation. Strange is unable to revive her, but decides to visit Linmer because, hey, maybe he knows something. LeFay sees multiple opportunities to kill Strange during this period, but she hesitates. This will come up later. Linmer tells Strange that his ignorance of magic and other realms is a form of protection, and asks him whether he wants to know the truth or remain blissfully ignorant. Strange can't help but demand the truth after hearing something like that. <laughs> so Linmer tells Strange that he knows about how his father died when he was 18. He adds that Strange is special, and that his parents were killed in a car accident in order to protect him from evil forces. He then explains that there are different realms, and that Lake's consciousness is trapped in one of them, and only Strange can save her. Doctor Strange is then soon dispatched to the astral plane, where he confronts and defeats the demon Balzaroth, whom <laughs> Morgan Le Fay had instructed with taking out Doctor Strange and then bringing him to her. But you can keep the girl. <laughs> Strange then retrieves Lake and they return to the physical world. It is a very pretty wind tunnel kind of situation. Yeah, this is when the green screen effects start taking full effect. There's this like psychedelic tunnel that's kind of like the end scene from 2001 A Space Odyssey, much cheaper. And the usually exclusively electronic soundtrack just goes full late 70s. It's yeah, you know, there's like saxophone honking and processed psychedelic guitar rolls and there's some tabla in the background. It's everything that you want to be in a 70s Doctor Strange movie. <laughs> The evil entity, enraged at this, uh, yeah, uh, failure on Faye's part, asks her why she spared Strange earlier, and she confesses to being attracted to him. <laughs> because even though she is an immortal sorceress, she is still a woman, and it has been too long since she's felt the warmth of a man's arms around her. The pool noodle does not sympathize. <laughs> The Fool Noodle uh, responds by threatening to make LeFay suffer eternity as an elderly woman if she fails him again. And what man will want her if she's old? I mean, her big villain at this point in time is an old sorcerer dude, so like, I really don't see the problem. He's doing just fine. Strange checks in on Lake and asks her on a dinner date for her later on which is professionally suspect. Right, and she's like a student too, so there's, I mean, I don't really mind the age difference too much, but I'm like, she just had a, like, a psychotic break. Give her some time. Yeah, he then goes to see Linmer, and in the ensuing dialogue, rejects the reality of magic despite his recent experiences. He insists that he's a rational man, and that evil isn't some abstract thing that possesses people. It is a facet of the human psyche and can be be treated and occasionally cured. 
As he leaves, he tries to remove his father's ring and finds that he cannot. While that's going on, Strange unwittingly lets in a cat that is possessed by Morgan Le Fay. Yeah, he just let some strange street cat into someone else's house. He's the worst house guest. I mean, it was raining and the cat was wet. Anyways, the cat transforms into Le Fay and Bess Wong in magical combat. They throw rotoscope lightning at each other. She has red lightning and Wong has yellow. All the good guys have yellow lightning in this, by the way. <laughs> but at least he has the lightning protective. <laughs> She incapacitates Wong, possibly fatally, and then defeats Lindmer, but she cannot kill him in this world, so she summons Asmodeus to transport Lindmer to the demon realms. Strange visits Lake and, you know, starts to take her out on a date, but Lefay interrupts, promising him that she will not harm Lake so long as he follows her to the demon realm. He agrees, and once there, he appears to be under her telepathic control, which you can tell because the camera starts getting real blurry. LeFay offers strange love, forbidden love, wealth, power, and love. knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> However, LeFay loses her hold on Strange when she begins to demand that he removes his signet ring. Strange protests that only Lindmer can remove it and defies LeFay's insistence that he try anyways. What really snaps him out of it is when she demonstrates that Lindmer has no power in this realm because here here's his desiccated almost dead body hanging on the tree over there right she looks so proud of herself she's like we can bond down now right this is gonna be great <laughs> he's like ah. yeah after strange's final rejection lefay attacks him but he defeats her rather readily <laughs> he tries to throw some of the magic word that he used to defeat you know the, the minion earlier and she laughs at him but then suddenly he can throw the yellow lightning and that's enough He's like, I can throw two hands of lightning. Come on, you're... Anyway, Strange retrieves Lindmer, returns to the earthly realm, and then uh, Wong uh, snaps out of it. He's okay. Enraged at her defeat, the evil entity transforms LeFay into a crone. Lindmer explains that Strange now must choose whether to remain mortal or become the next Sorcerer Supreme, foregoing ignorance, offspring, and a painless death by doing so. He also mentions that, you know, he probably could have beaten LeFay at any time, but he decided to pretend to lose to her so that Strange will get himself back involved, and, you know, he hoped and prayed that Strange would be able to reject Morgan LeFay's charms. He's like, I manipulated you, you see. <laughs> this is the life you want to be a part of, right? Yeah, Strange decides to protect humanity under the condition that, you know, he's still allowed to love. The universe is love, Brian. Acor it's love. According to Lindmer, who is referred to as the Ancient One from here on out, the universe is love. The power is transferred from Lindmer to Strange, and then Strange gets another fancy new costume out of it, and Lindmer immediately passes out. At this point, Wong warns Strange that while he now has Lindmer's powers, he does not yet have the knowledge or the wisdom to use them correctly. He's a baby with a gun. Mm. That's the metaphor Wong uses. And that, if Strange is not extremely careful, he can harm himself or others. Strange then picks up Lindmer in his arms and puts him into bed to recover. The end. But no, as Cheryl put it, this movie forgot to end for a few more minutes. <laughs> Strange is then shown at the hospital, where many patients have been discharged. He leaves with Lake, who seems to have no memory of what happened, and Strange just takes this as an opportunity to reenact the flirting it ritual where he creepily asked her out for a date again, even though that, you know, she is his recently recovered amnesiac patient. It's just so 
wrong. They then spot Morgan Le Fay on television, young again, posing as a self-help guru, but Lake fails to recognize her, signifying that, you know, everything's alright in the world. The film closes with Doctor Strange uh, bumping into a street magician in the park, and then turning the flowers that the magician was supposed to conjure, uh, using sleight of hand, into a dove. Like then, a total dick. Yeah, just chuckling to himself as this very confused street magician is like, what? I don't look like I know what I'm doing now. And he's just like, haha, you get no tips. Anyways, that's the movie. Alright, uh, production for this thing. Uh, Writer-director Philip DeGuerre was given a relatively large budget and ample resources for Doctor Strange. While campy and cheap-looking by modern standards, or mainstream theatrical films of the day, Doctor Strange is one of the earliest TV projects to have access to green screen technology. And you ask me if the brownstone that has the, you know, the little Doctor Strange logo window on it was a matte painting or a model. I'm leaning towards model, probably because that was cheaper and also everything else is green screened, but I didn't see any other matte paintings in this. Well, yeah, I figured it was either they had like a, an actual like building and then they just painted the weird top of the building or it was a model. Yeah, it could be that. The mezzanine was interesting. Uh, you, you pointed out that the interiors of Lindmer's and later Strange's brownstone is like green cave walls. Yeah, I was waiting for Fraggles to come out. Yeah, the inside reminded me of the Flintstone house. Also, whoever did the set dressing for this is really into owls. Oh my god, like every office has at least three owls in it. I was like, oh wow, Dr. Strange is really into owls. Oh wow, the Sorcerer Supreme is really into owls. Oh wow, Clay is really into owls. Another interesting creative decision is that when Strange and Clea are having the shared dream, everyone happens to be watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein at the same time. <laughs> it's like they could only afford one movie and they're like, we're putting it on all the TVs. This was expensive. At this point in time, Stanley had abandoned a direct role in writing and editing comic books in order to focus on consulting on Marvel projects in Hollywood, and also to continue his popular lecture tours. Lee's advice on these various outside media projects was usually ignored, and he described his experiences on the 1977 live-action Spider-Man TV show as an utter nightmare. Aww. We're not talking about the somewhat beloved Japanese Spider-Man where he has the giant robot and calls himself the Emissary of Hell. <laughs> there was an American Spider-Man TV show from the 70s as well, and it's pretty bad. Can I ask, do you know how old the actor who was playing Spider-Man was? I, I don't know. I, I really hope he's like a middle-aged man. And they're like, Peter Parker! I mean, they picked a pretty young dude to play Spider-Man in the Electric Company shorts. Although, they mostly went with him because he could do a backflip. I mean, that's impressive. I can't do that. <laughs> Lee, however, stated that Philip DeGuerre was receptive to him and that working on Doctor Strange was a pleasurable experience. And, you know, he got to be good buddies with DeGuerre overall. Uh, Doctor Strange was shot on Universal sets in L.A., but the shoot ran a few days late due to green screen issues. It, this is the first time a lot of people were using the technology, especially on a TV stage. Frank Brunner, who I mentioned as uh, one of the definitive Doctor Strange artists during the character's formative years, was one of the visual consultants and did concept art for this. Fearing that Doctor Strange's comics costume was too satanic looking, Brunner was asked to redesign it, and he gave Strange a stylized star emblem on his chest instead of, like, the swooshy horn thing. I like 
liked it. It was like a cutie mark. This was a common visual motif of Brunner's. You can see it all over his work, especially leading up to this period. As I mentioned before, the uh, score for this was done by Paul Chihara, who was a friend of Daguerre's, who whipped it together at the last possible moment, mostly as a favor. For the most part, it is electronic music, particularly when things are getting tense. You just start hearing keyboards just jamming out. Uh, yeah, you do get a couple of bits where he's allowed to expand it a bit. I don't think it's mind-blowing or anything, but it's fun, especially if you're into what film and television scores were like during this period, which, yeah, I am. Yeah. I, I whacked Rhapsodic about what Barbarella sounded like, and this is sort of cut from the same cloth. Yeah, very 70s charm. <laughs> okay, uh, for the cast, our Doctor Strange is played by Peter Hooten in this. If you look him up on Wikipedia or IMDb or just Google him, Doctor Strange is the most notable thing on his resume. Maybe he's the reason there are owls everywhere? Maybe it was a joke? Is Hoot? Uh. Maybe. For the most part, Hooten performed in European exploitation films, like really cheap, trashy German and Italian films where everyone is overdubbed and it's mostly just an excuse to have superfluous nudity and, and gore. He was in uh, The Inglorious Bastards, for example, not the Quentin Tarantino film, the 70s one with, that he took the name from. I don't know. Oh, uh, he is also in Orca. I also don't know what that is outside of a whale. Okay, after Jaws was really successful. Oh my god. <laughs> they put out a whole lot of other movies where marine animals just killed people, you know, like Piranha and so on. I believe that an orca whale would absolutely kill someone for fun. That, that makes sense. Orca is one of the weirdest and unintentionally entertaining Jaws knockoffs. So, so what I'm hearing is it's the movie we're going to do next. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like, the humans... You said yeah. <laughs> the humans kill a baby orca calf, Aww. and then the mom starts hunting them down like a slasher movie villain, one by one, and picks them off. So it's like Friday the 13th, but, like, on the ocean? Yeah, with an orca. I'm for it. It does seem right up your alley. Right? I'm, like, very disappointed that I've never seen this movie. <laughs> Putin largely stopped performing in the early to mid-1980s. At this point, he became the live-in lover for the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet James Merrill and basically stayed with him until Merrill died in 1995. That sounds very romantic. Probably less so if, you know, him being gay resulted in him being blackballed. I couldn't find any information one way or the other. Anyways, next person, Jessica Walter as Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Walter broke out with her performances in Grand Prix and particularly in Play Misty for Me, Clint Eastwood's directorial debut. However, at this point, she was mostly doing mercenary TV work, and she was pretty much doing that until Arrested Development and Archer gave her a new character type to rip on. And, like, she looks exactly the same in this movie as she did in um, Arrested Development. She's wearing a lot of Lucille Bluth dresses, but they're gothed up, and she's, you know, 30 years younger. But she has the same hair, Ryan. It's yeah. just not white. Yeah, they just sort of make up on its little widow's peak. I know, it's cute. And, like, she has, like, the same expressions. The only difference about her is her voice. It's smoky. Probably because of Play Misty for me. Oh, you haven't seen Play Misty for me? Uh-uh. Okay, and that one, Clint Eastwood, is this uh, late-night radio DJ, and Jessica Walter is this young lady who keeps calling in and requesting the same song, Misty. And they begin this torrid affair, but he breaks it off, and she becomes obsessed with him. Ooh, 
and it, boil a rabbit? Not quite, but yes, it's kind of a precursor to that sort of thing. Okay. Also, you see Jessica Walter's boobies, if that means anything to you. Not really, though. It's very blurry. <laughs> I didn't have the best copy of this movie. Yeah, we got one that was probably not super official. And no, Jessica Walter doesn't do a nude scene in Doctor Strange. I'm referring to play Misty for me, although she is wearing a lot of push-up bras in this. <laughs> It is disconcerting to see her in some ways because I'm used to her being significantly older, but also she's playing a character who is not Lucille Bluth or Mallory Archer, but kind of you can see uh, see it. She has a type. Most of her role in this movie is making like that suspicious pretend wink face from Arrested Development. That's all I saw the whole time. <laughs> made me think of uh, Walter talking about, in some random interview, about how uh, her granddaughter has no idea why everyone perceives her as the go-to actress for evil old bitch. Because she's like, Grandma, you're boring. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, next up we have Anne-Marie Martin as Clea Lake. I had to point out to you that this person was supposed to be Clea, and you're like, no. I stand by that statement. <laughs> All right, in the comics, if people who are not regular comics readers are listening to this, Clea is the daughter of Dormammu, and yeah, the only thing she has in common with the character here is the name. Martin didn't have a particularly lengthy career after this. She is best known for playing victims in various slasher movies, most notably Prom Night and Halloween 2. Oh, I've seen both of those movies and I did not recognize her. Yeah, she uh, later sagged into behind-the-camera work. Weirdest thing on her resume is that she wrote the 90s disaster movie Twister. That is super random. Yes, it is. Then we have Clyde Kusatsu as Wong. This is a character actor, and he shows up in anything that needs a Japanese man to deliver two lines of dialogue. His IMDb page is really long and is almost always random cameos. Wong's Japanese? Yes, Wong is played by a Japanese actor in this. He clearly doesn't look Chinese at all. I just, I had no idea. But yeah, he's in hundreds of things, ranging from Turner and Hooch to Rugrats. Sorry. More impressively, <laughs> he became a union activist, and from 2013 to right now, he is the vice president of the uh, Screen Actors Guild LA local. Good for him. Yeah, he's playing a pretty stock role here. I think that Doctor Strange as a film was a little wary of carrying over certain stereotypical elements that were found in the comics. They thought things that wouldn't fly. I think that's why there's that exchange where the Ancient One tells Wong that he's not a manservant after he cooks him breakfast, <laughs> but then passive-aggressively tells him that, you know, I hope your cooking is better now. Right? He's like, oh, you're my friend, I want to take care of you. And he's like, well, your eggs suck. <laughs> it's not the exact excuse. Just to be clear, the Wong is not supposed to be Japanese, right? My, I, I didn't get that wrong all these years. No, Wong's supposed to be Tibetan. Okay. That's what I thought, but I was like, oh my god, am I am I terrible? <laughs> all right, uh, John Mills is Thomas Lindmer, the ancient one. He <laughs> looks like Stan Lee. Is, is Maureen Le Fay going to kill Stan Lee? <laughs> Well, she tried. He is probably the most experienced thespian in this. He has over 120 credits and won an Oscar a couple of years earlier for a supporting role in Ryan's Daughter. He is also the only cast member of this to become a Disney legend for his performances in Swiss Family Robinson. I never saw it. I read the book. <laughs> I think this also plays into the, uh, we don't want to bring up dusty old stereotypes in this 1978 film because it's the modern day and we've moved on from Orientalist stuff. So instead they made him a stuffy British guy. I, I don't know if that's better than Tilda Swinton. 
I mean, one of them, I was like, ooh, it's Stan Lee! <laughs> Like he's okay in this. You know, he plays the learned old man who uh, gives Strange the call to adventure that he rejects. You know, we're getting in this post-Star Wars landscape where everybody has read The Hero with a Thousand Faces and is copy-pasting it into their film scripts. Yay! Yeah, Doctor Strange is the chosen one, everyone. He isn't a dick who has to learn better. More on that later. All right, the reception for this one, Doctor Strange was a total ratings bomb. Really? It wasn't just a huge hit they decided not to make the TV show? Yeah, Stan Lee was fairly generous to this film in a 1985 retrospective. He blamed the uh, TV movie's failure on it airing opposite roots. I mean, that is a hard thing to go up against. Yeah, I'm not saying he's wrong, but I, I am saying that, um... It's not going to happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It got abysmal reviews, both contemporary and retroactively. Most of the criticisms laid upon its plotting pace. People said that it played more like a medical procedural than a supernatural adventure. <laughs> we spent a lot of time in that psych ward. Yeah, yeah. Some people also criticized the film for having an odd disconnect with its lead character. And plenty of people said it was boring. Although you personally did not find Doctor Strange to be boring. I didn't, until it just decided not to end. And then I was like, come on! I do think that it's a long 90 minutes. Yeah. There were plenty of failed attempts to make another Doctor Strange project in outside media before they finally did in 2016. Are you talking about my favorite cartoon movie? No, I wasn't going to bring up the direct-to-DVD Doctor Strange movie, because, you know, that one actually happened. Although there is another one that actually happened, sort of. But uh, the next attempt was was in 1987, where Back to the Future screenwriter Bob Gale wrote a Doctor Strange script that generated good buzz. For a time, Wes Craven was attached to direct. This is, you know, after Swamp Thing. That ended up going nowhere. Full Moon Feature is best known for the <laughs> Puppet Master franchise. Yay! Got the rights to do a Doctor Strange movie in the early 90s. However, the license expired before they could get going on shooting. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, producer Charles B and decided to have the crew just sort of change just enough to keep things from being legally actionable. And the film was released under the title of Dr. Mordred in 1992. Oh, God. I, I have to say, like, I love the Puppet Master series, but I can't imagine that this is a palatable movie. It isn't, although uh, Jack Kirby, who created just about every noteworthy Marvel character of the Silver Age, except for Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, was brought on to produce concept art. I bet it's pretty and terrible. <laughs> Next attempt was by Stan Lee, who wrote a screenplay with Alex Cox in 1990. Cox is best known for doing the script for the Terry Gilliam film version of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This also went nowhere. I would be curious to see what happens in that. <laughs> And then the last one, just after Blade and X-Men and eventually Spider-Man made superhero movies a um, ongoing concern that is yet to abate, uh, David S. Goyer was commissioned to do a Doctor Strange movie. However, he dropped it in order to write Batman Begins instead. Because if you're offered Doctor Strange and then someone comes along and starts throwing Batman money at you, that's hard to say no. I mean, yeah, fair. I have mixed feelings about Goyer as a whole. I am not super interested in hearing his take on Doctor Strange. This project was then passed off to Guillermo del Toro. Oh my god, I want to see that movie! And he decided that he wanted Neil Gaiman to co-write the screenplay with him. <laughs> Why doesn't this exist? 
Well, this happened like just after Hellboy, but before Pan's Labyrinth. And this is also the period where Del Toro was involved in the Hobbit movie. So he had too many projects on his plate and something had to go. And it ended up being that. Why wasn't it the Hobbit movies? Those were terrible. I know. And they ended up not using Del Toro at all in them anyways. And then we had the 2016 Doctor Strange movie, which it might be its own episode someday, so there's that. All right, then we have themes. This is another one where I had to graft a bit before I settled on something. It's hairspray, isn't it? It's fantastic use of hairspray. Yeah, Peter Hooten's poodle hair. We want to talk about that for like 20 minutes to round out the episode. I know the first thing I wanted to bring up was a number of people, particularly more recent reappraisals of the film, have labeled Doctor Strange as a Gary Stew in this film. I disagree. I don't think he has enough direction or depth. Okay, for those of you not in the know, a Gary Stew is a sort of gender flip term for a Mary Sue, which is often a fan-created character, usually a self-insert, who is just perfect and good in every way and just immediately picks up and masters every difficult technical art that exists in this fictional universe and all of the canon characters just love and rely upon them for everything and all that. Well, they have one fatal flaw, but it's never like a bad one. It's always like, I drop hot things. And you're like, everybody drops hot things. This made me think of... You know, the defining characteristic of Doctor Strange in the comic, which is hubris. Uh, Mark Wade, a comics writer who handled Doctor Strange in just about every other noteworthy Marvel and DC property, once commented that most classic Marvel characters are depicted as arrogant in their origin stories, and then some tragedy teaches them humility, and ultimately they decide to choose the difficult yet honorable path of responsibility and accountability. Wade points out that Doctor Strange is different in that while he does go down and altruistic path, the arrogance never really dissipates. It just gets more intense, I think. You don't know what kind of a problem you have. Dr. Strange will tell you what kind of a problem you have. And this is one thing that distinguishes Strange from a lot of the other Marvel characters, aside from the fact that he's a middle-aged man and most Marvel characters are perpetually 22 to 35. This isn't perpetually unique for uh, Doctor Strange because Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Iron Man meant that Tony Stark has since been imbued with a cockiness and quippy swagger that he never really had beforehand. So when a more faithful to the source comics Doctor Strange was reintroduced, you know, about 10 years later or so, many saw him as Iron Man and Hogwarts drag, which they're not wrong. Well, I kind of wish that they had, like, swapped actors, because, like, Robert Downey Jr. is how I actually, like, read in my head Doctor Strange, like, his role, like, the way he did Iron Man. Mm-hmm. So I would have very much enjoyed that. As opposed to Benedict Cumberbatch not doing a great job of hiding his accent. He would have been a fantastic Dormammu. <laughs> he was Dormammu. Benedict was Dormammu? Yes, he also voiced Dormammu. Oh. Yeah, he did a great job with that. He was fine as Doctor Strange. Hooten's Doctor Strange doesn't really have too many personal failings to overcome. The only thing he really has to get over is his skepticism. And his mustache. He he fails to get over his mustache. He is faultlessly, guilelessly sincere in what he does, as opposed to, you know, your comics and your 2016 Doctor Strange, who is an arrogant, money-grubbing surgeon, who is mostly just in it to show off. And he also masters his magic lessons with little to no difficulty, although I think that's mostly for time reasons. (laughs) She's just like, you have no hope of defeating me. You're a child, you don't know what you're doing. He's like, I'm gonna do it with two hands now. And she's like, oh no! I lose. (laughs) What? 
Uh, yeah, the uh, lack of a important character arc or even much of a struggle in achieving a goal might have kept audiences from connecting with this particular Doctor Strange. And characters need not be likable, but they do need to have some kind of relatable goal. And your typical viewer can't identify with a character if they don't really want for anything and they instantly accomplish anything they set out to do. It's true, I did connect more with Morgan Le Fay than I did Doctor Strange. Morgan Le Fay just wants things so much. She wants to be powerful. She wants to be eternally respected. She wants Dr. Strange's cock for some reason. It's for her cold lips. Her cold lips. Are my lips cold now? <laughs> that is such a weird line. Is he dead? <laughs> <laughs> The change in how they depicted Doctor Strange leads me into the other point I wanted to make. Uh, licensing a Marvel IP and then not actually using this Marvel IP in their branded movie. Marvel became an international pop culture behemoth in the 1960s by selling its IP to any developer willing to put them in outside media, regardless of what type of operation they were running. The 1966 Spider-Man cartoon is indicative of how rinky-dink most of these early productions were. Well, 1960s 66 Spider-Man is very goofy in a fun way that is memeable. I defy you to watch multiple episodes of that show. <laughs> the period before Blade was very rough for Marvel properties in film and television, as evidenced by our prior episode on Howard the Duck. And like the majority of Marvel-based films and TV shows, Doctor Strange doesn't use any of the characters' villains. We have Pool Noodle, who is unnamed except instead of Dormammu, and we have Morgan Le Fay instead of, oh, I don't know, Umar. Yeah, or the Space Caterpillar. Yeah, the Space Caterpillar from the uh, Frank Brunner run. They also ignore most of the weird aesthetics that made the character popular in the first place, although I think this is largely for budgetary reasons. You know, you could do that little kaleidoscopic 2001 A Space Odyssey journey, but yeah, there's there are no like abstract geometric patterns floating in space like in the Ditko stuff, which is, you know, why, why people like Doctor Strange. They, they like the weird visual stuff. No, instead, let's just superimpose his face over his back and his butt. And you're like, what? Let's make him live in the Flintstone cave. That's trippy enough for most of the hippie kids. I love my I mean, I mean, it's 1978. How many hippies are left? Most of them sold out or died. That's bleak. It's also accurate. We know what, what happened to boomers. This is 2021. <laughs> But yeah, if you take out all the stuff that people liked about the character in the first place, then what's left? Hairspray. Came full circle. Yeah, I don't want to lavish too much praise on the MCU, although I usually like most of the movies. But um, they don't really do straight adaptations of the comics, but they do retain most of the defining elements of the IP, even if they occasionally lampshade them out of some sort of misplaced sense of embarrassment. In the MCU movies, the way that Thor flies is the same way that he flies in the comics, in that he spins his hammer around real fast and then throws it and holds onto the handle. I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's fucking Looney Tunes physics, and people are fine with that. <laughs> this is a direct contrast to earlier superhero movies like the X-Men, where they are embarrassed by the source material and put them in, like, leather Matrix jumpsuits because they think that uh, people will find that less goofy for some reason. Um, I have to say, though, I genuinely thought that Thor spent his hammer and made it like a propeller and made himself like his own little helicopter. I mean, that makes just as much sense. I didn't know that he was sterling. That's amazing. I mean, we get a lot of that whenever superheroes are brought to outside media. For example, whenever a Fantastic Four movie is made, some studio exec says they need to change Dr. Doom's name because Dr. Doom is a goofy name for a guy. 
It is, but it's a fantastically goofy name. Also, his name, Victor Von Doom. Von Doom is an actual name. There are people in the world who have the last name of Von Doom. He's not Dr. Von Doom. They just call him Dr. Doom. <laughs> Maybe in the next one they'll just add the Von. Yeah, what I don't get is why Dr. Doom is the ceiling for superhero movie goofiness. <laughs> like that, that is the line they will not cross. You know, but after the space raccoon uh, showed up and everyone loved him, uh, the Marvel movies, for all their faults, embraced the ridiculous, silly, over-the-top elements of the characters, and those are the parts that appeal to people, and it's the reason that people like them. Yeah, Captain America has wings on the side of his head, and his, his shield bounces around in defiance to all physics. That's why you like him. If you take that away, he's, he's not recognizably Captain America anymore. I know, I want his shield to work like Sonic in, like, the casino level. Yeah, and while I'd say that the 2016 Doctor Strange movie is a B-plus at best, most of the shit that the hippies dug about the 60s comics is in there. Mm-hmm. Not only is the origin done properly, but you, you get all the, the spooky abstract visuals as well. Okay, that's everything I had to say about this 1978 Doctor Strange TV movie. Is there anything that you would like to bring up about it before we close things out? I just want to draw our attention back one last time. Theater of the mind to the mystical pool noodle. Because that thought's going to stick with me for a while, and I'm going to treasure it. And nobody came to bargain with him. Little Tom Servo Mel. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good night, everybody.